We are continuing our conversation with Wilbur R. Miller, a professor of history at Stony Brook University and the author of A History of Private Policing in the United States. In part two of this episode, we discuss the similarities between policing during the 1960s civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, U.S. gun violence and the police state, Miller's thoughts on the defund police campaign, and much more. Take a listen. As far as a number of arrests with the January 6th invasion and insurrection, first of all, the Trump administration was trying to target left-wingers, right? They made up this myth of Antifa being a huge conspiracy, a nationwide organization. So the whole effort of all the agencies, Department of Justice, FBI, what have you, were not directed against right-wing extremists. So they totally underestimated their strength and their ability to organize. But I think in general, you don't target white men. Police don't target white men in general, whether they're walking on the street or engaged in a demonstration. And I think that's a major factor in the January 6th issue. Now, under a new administration, they are pursuing these guys and they're making arrests. What kind of punishment they'll get remains to be seen. I'm interested in how that develops. Yeah, I think we're still all waiting to get some semblance of accountability on literally any level for what happened. But what you said, I think that one of the reasons why white men don't get arrested is because they're just blatantly not perceived as a threat. (laughs) They hadn't even acknowledged the alt-right or the far-right as a legitimate sort of domestic terrorist Mm -hmm. threat until Trump was out of office. But far more violent acts than anybody on the left Oh, absolutely. There are so many different things to unpack in what happened on January 6th. On the one hand, it seems like one of the reasons why there weren't that many arrests or there wasn't that much violence is because reportedly there were a lot of off-duty police officers and veterans that were involved in the insurrection. And if they weren't necessarily involved, they were obviously deeply sympathetic and have a lot of antipathy towards the left because it is overtly anti-police. But at the same time, what was so ironic about it is that you saw, if you watch some of the videos from that day, there are people from the MAGA crowd holding Blue Lives Matter flags and still beating the crap out of officers. They one man. They killed an officer. Yeah, they did. Incidentally, yeah. What do you make of that? Do you have anything to say about that and sort of the dichotomy between that and the police's treatment of Black Lives Matter protesters? I think that a lot of these guys are simply thugs. And there's there's somebody in your way, you knock them down. And the ideology behind, there's not much ideology. It's really just anger and thuggishness. I was just reading in the paper that One of the guys arrested was this man who operates a website for men who are terribly insecure about their masculinity. It's misogynist. It's all kinds of terrible things. And he was arrested. And he said that one of the pleasures he got out of the demonstrations was seeing cops on the run. So I think there are a lot of these men. Some of them actually have had criminal records, it turns out. They're not necessarily sympathetic to the cops in their individual confrontations, even though they might in general support 
cops. But you understand what I'm saying? Yes. No, it's very complicated. And it seems like they're okay with it as long as they're bashing heads of the left. Yeah, like, but, and again, these Washington Capitol Police, I don't know how much respect they would get from these guys, including the ex-police, because they don't deal with criminals. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way that they have been perceived for the last four years, at least, is as Trump's personal foot soldiers, frankly. I mean, look at how he used the National Guard and all the sort of like machismo and white supremacy that's also embedded in like our policing that I think really appeals to people on the far right. But it was just so startling seeing the difference facing not just on January 6th, but the sort of anti-mask protests that have happened all throughout 2020 with people carrying assault rifles right up to state capitals and the police doing nothing. And yet I have to say, like I participated in some of the protests last summer and I saw people getting maced for no reason. I saw people getting dragged into cars for no reason. It's really horrifying. The police will face white people as they think they're leftists. Yes. (laughs) So thinking about this a little bit, You've talked about this a little bit already, but this was really the conversation that people were also having about the police in the 1960s during the civil rights movement, right? You think about some of the changes that happened in the 60s, and it was because police were literally spraying Black protesters with full power hoses in the middle of the street. I guess I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that history of police and the civil rights movement and how it's similar or different to the kind of policing that we see today in the modern Black Lives Matter movement. I think today is a rerun of what happened in the 70s. As I was saying earlier, that period was one of great attention to police brutality, especially against Black people. You remember there were presidential commissions on the subject. They wrote extensive reports. Academics are beginning to study the police. They're asking, well, why is this happening? Why is there this police brutality? And so on. So it's like a rerun. It's almost as if all of the efforts of the 70s to train police, to sensitize police, to hire women and minorities on the police force, in the end, I think they probably improved the quality of the police, but did not really get at that fundamental attitude that if your job is to look out for criminals, one of the first clues is their skin is black or dark. Now, this goes way, way back. The police were told, even in the 1840s, that They should look out for suspicious persons. They were not told in the early manuals how to identify suspicious persons. And in a manual that I was able to look at in the New York Public Library, the owner of it, 1846, the owner of it had written on the flyleaf, a man wouldn't live a day if he obeyed these rules. So the police see themselves, even in the 1840s, right, they see themselves as out there alone facing danger. Now, who were the suspected criminals in those days? The Irish, right? The poor Irish. And so over the years, over the decades, the suspect group has changed. Now, blacks never really shed the stigma of being suspect. And even in the 1850s in New York State, there were far more black prisoners in proportion to their population than anybody else. So they've always, always had this label pinned to them. But mostly the police concentrated on the Irish. There are so many more Irish. There are not many black people. There were some, but not many in New York City. And in the draft riots in 1863, when the Irish mob started beating and lynching black people, the police actually intervened to protect the black people. In a way, at that time, the Irish were seen as worse 
right? They were committing the violence. So this notion of looking out for suspicious persons, how do you know who's suspicious? By clothing? That's one. I remember back when running shoes became popular. The police I spoke to is often referred to them as perpetrator boots. So, you know, here's our black kid with running shoes. Okay, start asking him questions. Stop him asking him questions. What's he doing? Now the hoodie is probably the mark, right? Black kid in a hoodie. So you do it by clothing. You do it by clues that veterans communicate to you, things you might learn when you've actually arrested real criminals, people actually had committed crimes. And it's also a general attitude. I think that most police grow up not full of hatred, not actively white supremacist, but in a kind of racist context where there are a lot of assumptions that are not necessarily all the time verbalized. But on the job, if you're especially by yourself or with only one other person, these things come to play and your suspicions are aroused. So what's different today, of course, is that we see this happening, right? The video recordings. The first one, if I'm not mistaken, was the beating of Rodney King in California in 1991. That was caught on an amateur's video camera, right? It's, you know, primitive, but it was enough. It showed what happened. Now, it didn't lead to the punishment of the police officers, but it showed what happened. And that, you've got more and more of that. Now you see it. You saw Floyd dying, right? So that makes a huge difference, and it arouses more protests. But believe me, black people have protested police brutality Decades ago, I mean, some of the most active organizations that we have records of were in the 1920s and 30s. So it's kind of a rerun, unfortunately. No, of course. And I mean, something sort of implicit in what you're saying is that with publicizing the atrocities, like with Rodney King or with George Floyd, it's become impossible for us to ignore, I mean, including, but particularly white people, it's impossible to actually look the other way now. That's like the civil rights demonstrations in the South. Those were on television. And I think that got many Northerners more favorable to the civil rights. Well, here are these very respectable Black people being hosed down and beaten with clubs. But the interaction between the cops in the North and the Black people was not televised. I also think that this is maybe cynical. One of the reasons why it really kind of came to a climax in 2020 was also because of the coronavirus, because I think what the coronavirus has made obvious in the United States is that a lack of social safety net is absolutely devastating and can kill hundreds of thousands of people and predominantly people of color. Black people are more likely to get sick with COVID and die from it because there's no money invested in public housing. There's no money invested in public education or there's no national health service, as you said. But instead, we're seeing that money invested in the people who brutalize Black people. And I think that all those things kind of came to one gigantic climax while also seeing such a brutal example of violence shared all around the world on social media. So, I mean, yeah, I think that it's much harder to push it all under the rug in this sort of like white liberal way. I mean, I think we're very much past the whole post-racial era. We're so far gone from even like the Obama era of how we were talking about race. It's There's never a post-racial era. No. These uh, white supremacist movements gained in numbers of people, numbers of organizations during the Obama administration. And there are a lot of people out there who hated the idea of a black president. 
Yeah. And I think that you could see a lot of what's happened in the last eight years as a reaction to that. I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't want to go too far deep into that because I think that there's lots of different things to unpack mm-hmm. as to how the far right has become what it has today in the US. I think it's a history that has been building for decades at this point. And what you're getting at too is, to use Michelle Alexander's term is that these things like our modern police state and our modern prison state is kind of like a new Jim Crow. It is just because of their histories of being inherently oppressive and white supremacist. Their structures are still sort of programmed to secure us against Black people who are considered a threat. Another thing that I've been thinking about, and you talked about this a little bit already, is one thing that was also happening during the civil rights movement was the rise of the gun rights movement. My understanding is that the modern gun rights movement in the U.S. kind of started through like the Black Panthers, actually, that it was sort of Black radicalism that pushed this idea that because the police were as brutal as they were, that Black people should arm themselves as a sort of individual militia to protect themselves against the state. But then obviously the NRA, I mean, you could probably articulate this history a lot better than I can. Obviously the NRA took that and it became co-opted by the far right. And now what we see is like a bunch of white people, angry white people with assault rifles. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about like how this has changed the state's or civilians' relationships to the police when everybody is armed now. But yeah, I guess the police have also become like even more militarized. Oh, a lot of complicated things going here. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. The NRA was once upon a time an organization devoted to hunting safety and encouraging the sport of hunting and marksmanship. When I was a kid in summer camp, I actually earned a marksmanship badge from the NRA. Now, it took me the whole summer to be able to hit the target, but I earned it. As I understand, the NRA shifted to this militant gun rights movement after the federal government passed a gun control law outlining certain types of automatic weapons. And that's when they really geared up the political campaign to make gun rights into something absolute. That's the whole thing about the right to bear arms. Unfortunately, it's in the Constitution, but so is free speech and free press. And neither free speech nor free press are an absolute right. There are limitations, but these people argue that gun rights are absolute. Now, I've changed my thinking a little bit or changed my emphasis a little bit in thinking about that because I read a long article recently about how young black men in poor neighborhoods carry guns routinely. That's a case where carrying the gun, usually illicitly obtained by people who import them from the southern states, they carry them for personal survival. Because if they don't, if they're not armed, they could just be wiped out. And this is part of the poverty, the whole complex of things in impoverished neighborhoods. So that's one kind of gun culture. Another where black people are involved is more middle class black people. They feel in danger from the police and some from the state itself and it's all its ramifications. They're buying more guns. So this gun ownership is accelerating. Now, I think the greatest fear of the white gun rights advocates is the armed black person. Because I think a lot of their attitude, a lot of their attitude, I think, is carrying that gun openly is a matter of principle. Now they say, we need it for protection. Well, maybe, but they don't face the kind of situation young black men carrying guns face. Young black men carrying guns don't say, we carry an automatic pistol in my pocket as a matter of principle. They said in this article, I'd be dead if I didn't have it. 
So the white men, I think a lot of it is symbolic rather than a real need. It's an assertion of individual power. With black people, it is different. But now, about the Black Panthers is interesting. Of course, the Black Panthers, California at the time in the 60s had an open carry law where you could carry a rifle around legally. And the Black Panthers showed up in the gallery of the state legislature with their rifles. What did California do? Repealed open carry, right? <laughs> the black <Classic>. man with <laughs> a gun is part of the white man's fear. Yeah, and, and that's why you see white people carrying AK-47s with total impunity right up to the state capitol, mere inches away from police. I've been in some of these states. I've actually never seen a person carrying a gun around, but people I know have. <laughs> so, you know, it's a different culture from New York City. No, for sure. But, you know, what's interesting is you talk about survival and something I've been hearing a little bit on the left that gives me pause is this idea of survival, that it's obvious that our gun culture in this country is really not going away anytime soon. And if there's all of this dirty money keeping it alive and well as a part of American life, then should we as leftists arm ourselves to protect ourselves from an increasingly militarized police force and an increasingly militarized public <laughs> there was an article in Harper's Magazine called Arm the Left. Now, if the left arms and parades around with guns and the right parades around with guns, somebody's going to get shot. <laughs> I think these guys with guns at least have a sense of not shooting unarmed people. I hope, right? I hope. I don't think it's a good thing for the... Well, look what happened to the Panthers, right? They were wiped out by the federal government. And so right. starts getting armed and carrying guns and forms militias. If we have a Republican administration, you can bet that they'll be attacked the same way the Panthers were. There's an authoritarian streak in me that sometimes when I saw those videos, I said, smash the right, you know, get the police in there swinging their batons, just crack their heads, let the blood flow, teach them a lesson. Well, that's not so great either. <laughs> um, no, I mean, we need to challenge ourselves in this way. I know what you mean, this sort of violent antipathy towards the other side. I mean, I think that it manifests in totally different ways. Like, obviously, we're in this polarized state now where we perceive our opposition as an illegitimate enemy. This obviously takes like a much more scary, violent form on the right. Like you said, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think you see like a bunch of leftists carrying around guns in the same way. And I also just viscerally, as somebody who really hates guns, like I just viscerally, that makes me so uncomfortable thinking about the solution to gun violence is not more guns. But I don't know, it's just, it's interesting because yeah, not just the money and the sort of institution backing of the police force, but it is just the sheer brutality of their weaponry that I think demoralizes people from organizing against them. It's probably something that we can't answer in this conversation today. But Police militarization, that's also a fairly long-term trend, but it really accelerated, well, again, in the 60s, right? with the police dealing with the ghetto riots of the 60s. It was fed when they started giving surplus military equipment. But I think also part of it is even without the equipment, police increasingly have felt that they're in combat. And the military gear, the things they wear, the vehicles they have, feeds that sense that they're in combat. Their soldiers are fighting battles against the criminals. They're not police who are enforcing law or maintaining order. They're soldiers against an armed enemy 
that kind of thing. And that's worse than it used to be. Although I think, again, the problems of the 60s are the roots of a lot of that. Yeah, I think it's also reflected in their training as well. I think their training is not that different from people who are training for armed combat. But in light of all the things that we've discussed, I think it's obvious that there are so many different overlapping issues with our modern police force, be it the gross amount of money that is funded into state police forces, the militarization, the sort of white supremacist legacy of policing. There's just so many different things to tease out. But I guess I want to change gears a little bit and start thinking about how we can actually confront some of these issues. I don't know how much forecasting you can do as a historian, but what do you see as the future of private policing? And what are some things that you think we should consider as a society to sort of challenge the ubiquitous power of police and their relationship to the state? Okay, now you're asking me about private policing. Yes, or just private policing, if you have ideas about policing in general. Well, a lot of it depends on the power of the privatization movement. I think the private prison movement has received a check at this point. It never became a majority of prisons anywhere. I think it almost did in certain states, but the private prison movement has had some setback. One of the guys who worked for a private police force in New Orleans after Katrina, he was being interviewed and he said, you know, this is a trend. You're going to see more private policing, especially in the case of natural disasters, huge disasters. And I think he may be right. I think the trend toward private policing, I don't know if it's increasing as rapidly as it has been. In a way, private policing has sort of gone out of the public attention because there's so much about public policing that there are issues. So the future of private policing, it's not going to go away. It's always going to be with us. And there are legitimate uses for it. I mean, security guards, right? The public police can't do that. They can't guard somebody's factory or guard somebody's entertainment facility. They can't do that. So there are places for private policing. I think my idea is that the state should regulate them more. And this whole notion of them being immune from constitutional protections that you mentioned earlier is something the state has to pay attention to. Now, in California, back in the 90s, I think it was, early 2000s, a court actually held that private police are agents of the state because maintaining order is a state function. But that hasn't held up in other states or other levels of courts. If that trend can develop, it might see more regulation of private police, which I think is the best thing. As far as the future goes, I only deal with dead people. (laughs) (laughs) But the militarization of public police is really an issue, and I think that's something that one can actually address in terms of reducing it. And what are some of the ways that we can address it? I mean, do you have any opinions about the defund police campaign or even prison or police abolition? Is it something that's possible? Defund is sort of a, I think it's a misleading phrase. I don't think it was the best phrase. because Mm -hmm. I think most of the people advocate defunding mean reallocation of public money for social purposes, right? And don't buy all this equipment for the police. Don't pour so much money into the police that you neglect everything else. That's what it should be about, and I agree with that. You know as well as I do that there are many, many things that need a lot more money to be able to function at a decent level. So I think the better phrase is reallocation, but that doesn't sound quite as jazzy as defund. (laughs) Not quite as punchy, I agree. And I think the sort of response to that or the retort is that we've been defunding 
education and yes. other sort of public sources for decades and a whole generation of austerity cuts. Yes. It's hard because, yeah, you need something sort of punchy to chant at protests. I also think that they don't want to sugarcoat it. They really do just want take money away from the police. But I guess it's hard if you're trying to win over people who are running on a sort of law and order message. Even centrist Democrats are scared by it. I think it's not helpful to talk about defunding unless you make clear that what you mean is what I call reallocation. Because a lot of people, black and white, black and white, are scared of not having enough police. This is something to remember, too. Black people are really in a dilemma. They don't have enough police. Their neighborhoods don't have the attention from the police that they should have. Many middle-class black people believe that. On the other hand, their own middle-class sons and daughters can get into an encounter with the police and be shot. So it's a terrible dilemma for them. So defunding doesn't entirely address that dilemma either. So I'm guessing that prison abolition or police abolition is also out of the question for you. Uh, Well, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking that prison abolition might be something like the position that many abolitionists took about slavery. Many abolitionists knew that you couldn't instantly abolish slavery, right? You couldn't just say, okay, you're free now. That could be done only in wartime and it didn't affect all the slaves anyway, right? When Lincoln issued the proclamation. Most abolitionists knew you just can't free people now. But you've got to get into a state of mind where you campaign for that freedom, where you press for it, where you keep at it. I think that's my attitude about the abolition of prison. It's a worthy goal. Prisons are, you know, as well as I do, prisons are awful places. I had an interesting experience recently at Stony Brook. One of my colleagues named Robert Chase, who's written a lot about prison rights movements, has organized a discussion group around the prisons and carceral state and that sort of thing. And he actually was able to get some prisoners, prisoner activists to Zoom with us in Alabama, of all places. And these guys were telling their stories and the horrible situation they faced. So they went on strike for better services. They got beat up. One man who we talked to in the group got savagely beaten. We don't know yet what the outcome for him is. It's very visible and it really does show you how prisons are a school of crime. Uh, And that phrase that I'm using could go back to the 1850s. They teach them how to become better and more ruthless criminals. So I have a kind of, maybe it's utopian yearning that prison should do rehabilitation like they once did. It's like a cycle goes rehabilitation, incarceration and warehousing. That's bad. Rehabilitation is too soft. Back to incarceration and warehousing. But some kind of rehabilitation, job training, education, decent treatment. doesn't have to be luxury treatment, but providing edible food adequate services, adequate medical services. That's really what we need. Now, if I were an abolitionist in the 19th century, I'd sound pretty strange. I'd be saying, oh, feed the slaves better. Give them adequate housing. That's not abolitionism. So I think it's a worthy goal. What the alternative to prison would be, I have no idea. A kind of either uh, on the one hand, on the other hand. But that's what historians do. We always try to see beyond the immediate into larger issues, unforeseen consequences. Right. Yeah. I think that we're still trying to figure out what that even looks like because I know people for a while were using the example of Camden, New Jersey. Well, this was police specific, but they got rid of their police force entirely, but then it developed into this like huge surveillance state and we don't want that either. That's alternative, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's such a tricky question. I'll be open. I endorse those goals. Like I sympathize towards prison abolition and police abolition because of my political stance on things. But I don't know. It's something that you were just saying of people in prison getting brutalized to the point where they're on the brink of death. I mean, these issues are clearly a matter, literally a matter of life and death for people. So sometimes I'm like, I don't really care if centrists are on board or not. But yeah, I don't know if the goal is to make centrists feel comfortable with it. You're right. But unfortunately, in our political system, if you're really trying to get make a goal, you have to compromise with the centrists. <laughs> you don't have to compromise with the radical right, but this is the way it works, unfortunately. You know, I suppose in my old age, I've gotten less demanding of immediate action and more aware of the complications that happens, but it's something to be aware of. I don't know. Maybe this is just my sort of rosy-eyed, hopeful, 20-something-year-old brain, right? I know. But I also, I think it's bullshit. I think that the state is constantly gaslighting us. I think all these things are more than possible because we've increased our Pentagon budget by trillions of dollars every single year. It's just like, it's become obvious that like the state can guarantee Medicare for all quite easily if they actually wanted to... Sorry, I'm not really articulating. No, no, I understand what you're saying and I highly approve. (laughs) I definitely approve of what you're saying. I believe when I was 25 or so that the United States would evolve into a Scandinavian-style welfare state due to social movements. In Scandinavia, I've been learning recently, in Sweden in the 40s and 50s, there were social movements for all those welfare reforms. So I believe that. I was very optimistic about what could happen. (laughs) <laughs> now I've lived through Reagan era, the Bushes, Trump. I was very hopeful under Obama, but Obama didn't achieve very much except for the Obamacare, which I think Biden can build up into a better system. So I approve of the young people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think for me, it just feels like we need to force the issue with people like, I don't want to digress too much, but some thoughts on this is like people like Bernie Sanders, who have made... Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and things like that, such a mainstream part of the conversation that even if that's not logistically possible within the next couple of years, forcing the issue just like pushes the center to the left. And I think we've seen that with Joe Biden a lot. The civil rights movement was achieved by people pushing, right? They pushed very hard and they had to push for decades. And that was achieved by people pushing. And if you push, bravo. You know who really got the issue of inequality into public discourse? Occupy Wall Street, a kind of noisy, disruptive movement. They brought that language into political conversation. And that's very, very important. I agree. And you, as somebody who came of age in the 60s, you can appreciate this probably, but people of my generation are so, like, how can you not be radicalized at this point? We've lived through 9-11, the Bush era, the 2008 recession, Trump, violent insurrections of the state, like, I'm sorry, also, you know, a burning planet. It's just like, how can you not be radical at this point? But yeah, I hope that you are personally financially secure. But as you well know, and you probably have friends like this, who young people today are far less secure than we were. But we could get jobs. I was kind of among the last group who really, it wasn't hard to get a job as a professor. I got it through the old boy network. But I felt that I was kind of stepping over the crack and then it opened up into an abyss behind me. But you people are facing a very uncertain future. 
you know, I don't want to depress you. <laughs> no, oh, don't, don't worry. I'm already like plenty depressed. <laughs> I think living in 2021 has already done the trick. Yeah. <laughs> but on that note, I mean, that's what we have to work for in terms of the sort of carceral state. I think that the fact that these conversations are such a focal point for people right now, I think will... And you already see this with Joe Biden, even if he doesn't necessarily want to move, he doesn't embrace this sort of defund police movement. But as you said, he's broken contracts, private prison contracts. And I'm optimistic that we could force him to contend with some of the other big asks of the defund campaign. Yes, of course, I'm happy that Trump is gone. I'm a little bit skeptical of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, particularly in this area because of Biden's crime bill and Harris's background as a DA in California. That's a different conversation. I'm cautiously optimistic is what I'll say. I'm glad you're optimistic. I'm very glad you're optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Reformers have to be optimistic. If everybody got depressed and said, oh God, we can't do anything. Well, you know, nothing can happen. You have to keep hope because I think the driving force of this whole conversation is that the brutality and the sort of ubiquity of policing is meant to demoralize people. It demoralizes and exhausts them from organizing. And I think the point is like you need to keep hope in order to continue organizing against such powerful, violent forces. Yeah, I think it's inspiring. I'm glad to hear it. Well, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the show. This has been really enlightening. Thank you for highlighting all of this really convoluted history of this force that just really affects all of our daily lives. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 